You're listening to the sixth episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about rules-focused Christianity not working. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God despite everything. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 6, The Voice of Death. This song was written in the 90s, a few years before I was kicked out of my faith community, to express a very familiar experience I grew up with, finding something awesome, just a a little thing. Spider-Man, a song, a game, an actor, or comedian. Having your heart light up and open up with a natural joy response to that quite innocent thing. Wallop and web snappers. What was that? Only to have an adult figure see this, come in, and put those joy fires out with a big bucket of shame, and stamp all over it to make sure every spark of natural joy or confidence was quenched, making room for church stuff to occupy our hearts unchallenged, like they do now with the new forms of political piety-seeking. If it makes you happy, it can't be that good. Regular stuff was problematic, and enjoying it meant it was time for shame and somber disapproving faces. I have not necessarily had anyone but me see this situation quite the way I see it, that joy or life are targeted by certain narcissistic personalities and personality problems, that your joy alerts those people and draws them over to you. But I know I've seen it happen. So to me, it's not just that people muddle around doing what they do and in the course of that often manage to make one another quite unhappy. It seems to be the case that some people hate joy and target it. I know. I've been accused of this myself. Jenna when a student in my class, decorated my classroom door for the Students' Council Christmas Door Contest one year. She thought my door should be Grinch-themed. You're a mean one, Mr. Moore. Seemed to fit my having been raised without Christmas and now lacking the enthusiasm for it sufficient to get me to roll out of bed wearing ugly Christmas sweaters or Santa hats or Jingle Bell socks on the days mandated for us to do that at school. But I let Jenna decorate the classroom door. In fact, I helped her do it, to the delight of all the Who's and Whoville. Because it was one of those brethren things I was determined to overcome. Maybe you know the feeling. You want other people to have to enjoy only what you enjoy, the way you enjoy it. You don't like it when they enjoy things you think are bad or dumb. You go into a church or a comic book convention or pep rally or gossip girl or vampire diaries forum or something, and you don't get what exactly is so joy-bringing. You can't feel it yourself, but seemingly everyone else is collectively going out of their ever-loving minds with joy and delight. Are you crazy, or are they? And you find your finger reaching out for that nuclear strike button that you don't have. Wouldn't it be best to just leave a smoking crater where all that fuss is currently going on? Maybe, it's tempting to think, we'd be better off with no religion at all. Or maybe Vampire Diaries is bad, and we need to all admit that. Harmful for women, for the 21st century, for people who identify as the undead, or whatever. Or maybe it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the new Star Trek that's problematic and stupid and bad and should just stop. Or maybe it's the troubling old stuff that needs to stop being enjoyed. And the new iterations that bear its name should promote only your particular preferences and lifestyle choices, or none at all. Maybe we ought to ban Christmas and all things festive in a deep and dark December. 
or mandate strongly encourage seasonal activities that people just really need to participate in. Maybe church needs to be how you like it, and all of these other kinds of services at which congregants think that maybe it's a kind of TED Talk or pop song or TikTok or fashion thing should all just go away right now. So maybe we should make church illegal or mandatory or something that earns attendees a significant tax cut and penalizes those who won't submit to it or something. So people not doing or liking things you think are really, really good. It's tempting to want to find a way to make them or punish them for not being into it. People being really, really into something you hate. It's tempting to stamp on that. But some of us were pretty young when that stuff got done to us over and over and over. Every time we embraced joy in anything not church-sanctioned. And we sure didn't like it then. So it's something I want to get over. But the poor prodigal had to learn that the pursuit of pleasure brought remorse, regret, and grief. And remorse is the devil's pay. Back then, the expectation was clear. Remove from your life pretty much all joy and pleasure-bringing stuff that isn't church stuff, and then be obviously happier and more at peace than regular worldly folks could ever dream of being. Just that. And not just some of the time, all of the time. And the Lord wants us to be happy all the time, not just some of the time. So I think I'm going to introduce you as Michael Vetter, who currently basically lives up a tree on the side of Clinch Mountain, Tennessee. That's relatively accurate, right? Fairly accurate, except I'm still living in the same old camper that I've been in for seven years now. We're currently working on space to uh, basically a privy, which has turned into a two-story building, and it just keeps getting bigger, but it, it's only got a roof on it at this point. It's going to be no a, a two-story privy? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you weren't 100%, but that move where they try to shame you for, for having fun, I'm sure that happened, and from an outside perspective, it looked like it didn't work on you guys quite as well. You weren't as easily shamed. There must be a reason besides arrogance. Maybe it was arrogance. Um. <laughs> <laughs> could be arrogance so someone comes and says what you're doing is bad and it proves that you're bad if you have sufficient arrogance like, you're like, what? You tell me. who are you yeah i can't be bad i'm me but was there was there anything else going on there one thing that springs to my mind is that your father and your family had thought through a lot of this stuff so when somebody gave their little scriptural interpretation you weren't helpless to that you had other scriptural interpretations that might balance or disagree with it I, I think that had a lot to do with it. My dad was big on digging in and figuring out and getting hold of the concepts of scripture um, on your own. When he would learn something, he would dispel it to the family and we would all kind of put that into our thought processes. I suppose that had a good bit to do with it. I think a root of that possibly was when he was in high school, his English teacher gave him an Ayn Rand book to read which blew his mind at the time because um, her whole premise is selfishness mm -hmm. and being selfish. And though it doesn't quite jive with, with the whole meeting idea of, of we, well, there is nothing worse than self and we must purge ourselves from self. Um, Until we're a self with no self, which is what we all want in ourselves. Right. Right. But it, it, it comes, if, if you don't use the word selfish and you supplant it with your own individuality, Mm -hmm. is a thing that God is is interested in. 
uh, it gives you a dignity that is hard to stamp on. If you're something that God has planted, then you growing in a individual path makes sense instead of being a threat to the Christian group. Yeah. Really changes things up. Um, like I, I felt the group was very anti, like very threatened by individuality and your family were sort of triumphantly individualistic with an assumption that God created and wanted individualism. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Loving anything besides church stuff was idolatry, making an idol. It was giving something else God's proper place in your heart and in your day because your church and not anyone else's church, it's where God is working. Honest. If we came to one of your planning meetings, we'd know the big plans you, I mean, God has for your church and your local community, all right? We'd see the Holy Spirit working through your guy and your group and your stuff. I still believe in God. I'm really not sure that sort of thing is a choice either. But you know what I can't believe in anymore? That your little group is the main thrust of a specific church membership drive that God is doing in our community. That he's betting all he has on you, putting all of his eggs in that one basket on the people and efforts and concerns of your group to make more members for your group and through it his own people. That this is the height of his ambition and interest in your community to grow your group like a field of carrots and through it, with your cooperation and help, finally start to have a connection to the human beings in your area through you guys. Thing is, your area is filled with Christian groups all claiming this exact same kind of thing, and I don't see it. I do believe in God the Father, but I don't believe in your pastor. I believe in God the Holy Spirit, but I don't believe in your worship team. I believe in God the Son, but I don't believe in your outreach efforts at all. And to put it in brethren language for brethren people, I believe in the Bible, but I don't believe I'll hear anything helpful at reading meeting. I believe in God, but I don't believe he has any association with your group that's any different from his association with me and the people I know, the ones who believe in him and the ones who don't. And now, you clearly have nothing I want or need. And I didn't used to know that. But here's how it happened. This great sacrifice I was supposed to be making in my 20s was that after essentially not having any of the regular teenage 80s stuff I would otherwise have experienced, well, I wasn't supposed to be having any of the 90s stuff now either. Much of that stuff was not wrong in and of itself, the folks at meeting were willing to admit. But the stuff being taught at meeting, that stuff was gold, supposedly. Stuff we had spiritual joy in. The movies and live music and TV and fashion and so on, the fun times with regular folks, was just natural joy. We were supposed to be spiritual enough to count all that natural stuff but grade A organic dung, the most natural of things, surely, and instead pursue spiritual joy. Not dung, light. Light from above, from right above, where the ceiling fans whirled in the meeting hall ceiling. Fluorescent light from above, it turned out. Though we had no official pastors, there were guys talking all right. There were always guys talking, all church long, five times a week. And they could be referred to as leading brothers. If you wanted to hold the highest position possible in our brethren group worldwide, though, you'd become a missionary or traveling speaker figure, which we called a laboring brother, because you didn't have a job. Well, not one, besides the going around giving sermons. I remember being in first grade. And they passed around a sheet of paper and there were a couple of questions on it. You only had like three on a, 
because that was your attention span in first grade. And one of them was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I remember thinking, I want to write a laboring brother on here. Um, but I knew even as a first grader that that wasn't going to fly in a school culture because they would have no idea what I was talking about. So I picked my second choice, which was artist. So I wrote down right. artist. But even at that age, I knew that that was the, the, the height of what uh, a person could desire uh, by meeting standards. The thing is, in the 90s, in my 20s, I had to face the simple fact that nothing of importance was being taught or said at meeting, pretty much ever. It just wasn't. I knew this firsthand. I was there, paying close attention, waiting for years. Much of this nothing was tape-recorded, too, if you wanted to double-check. It still is today, only they use MP3s. You can hear it if you like. Solomon had the wisdom to judge with the sight of his eyes when he put the proposition up between those two harlots about whose baby it was. He had to prove it out by the sight of his eyes. But he had the wisdom to do that. The Lord has wisdom without that. He doesn't have to see it. He already sees it. But my contention is that nothing of importance is being said for hours and hours and years. But back then... I knew that if I wanted to get deeper into the Bible, have more perspective on it, think about how life might work if I let the Bible be what it actually was if you let it be instead of warping it into twisted cherry-picked bits of it used to co-sign all of our church's decisions and opinions and positions, I was going to have to differ, disagree, and branch out. I was going to have to go farther afield. And the thing is, if that Plymouth Brethren meeting stuff, that the books and Bible studies, the addresses and the conferences weren't, in fact, the height of spiritual stuff, imparting a glowy mountaintop experience that was more than run-of-the-mill tribal membership and belonging to a community, but an actual divine joy of some kind unavailable anywhere else? If we went with actual, rather than theoretical and ideal, with results, rather than claims, outcomes, rather than intentions, that changed everything. On a Thursday night, that Brethren Reading Meeting was on an equal footing suddenly, with a friend of mine who'd written songs and was performing them live uptown and greatly appreciated anyone showing up to listen to him. If the meeting stuff wasn't simply granted special status relating to spiritual joy and enlightenment, but had to deliver or lose out to all the other regular stuff that was going on, we would see what we would see. And what we saw was that supposedly spiritual stuff losing, it coming up very short, being manifestly not worth the six or so hours per week it demanded of every one of us. But that's the thing about being a Christian. You're supposed to simply grant Christian stuff, music, books, events, groups, and individual people, a superior position, which means they're always better than the normal stuff. Oh, Eminem may rap better and be funnier, but is he a Christian rapper? If you want to reach those kids on the street, then you got to do a rap to a hip-hop beat. So I gave my sermon an urban kick. My rhymes are fly, my beats are sick. My crew is big and it keeps getting bigger. That's because Jesus Christ is my n***. Christian rappers are doing something on a whole different level than Mr. Mathers. He's a life changer, miracle arranger, born to the virgin mom in a manger, water to wine, he's a drink exchanger, and he died for your sins. I preach the word, that's my gig, and I rhyme better than Notorious Big. All the other MCs, I wish them well, but if you live in sin, you burn in hell. That's the way it is. 
lowered standards, because the pond in which we are the big fish is such a tiny Christian one, with so few allowed to swim in it at all. We don't have to compete on an equal footing with the regular stuff at all. So let's skip the bullshit and get right to the questions. Just play Christian rock. You have a better chance. Rip off a band like Stained or Green Day and sing about how Jesus is sad and you'll make millions. You're referencing the video there I did a while back, 13 Reasons Why Your Band Will Never Make It. That's absolutely a wonderful winning strategy. You've got a built-in audience. And believe me, if I didn't have a conscience, I'd be doing exactly that. But I just there's just no way I could sing like that and then look myself in the mirror every day. I just, I just couldn't do it. I'm not wired that way. But for those of you guys who don't mind exploiting the gullible for profit, hey, have at it because there is a giant market for that shit. Holy shit, we sold a million records. Praise the Lord! It's a miracle! Our stuff doesn't have to demonstrate its value by going up against those generally assumed to be the pros, because our stuff is assumed to, being Christian, obviously have a great deal of special, edifying spiritual, spiritual value, value, certainly far more than the regular stuff right from the get-go. Here's a thought exercise. Every time someone uses the word spiritual, try their sentence on with the words purely imaginary subbed in for their use of the word spiritual. You don't have to be an atheist to see that making a whole lot of sense of a whole lot of people right quick. Anyway, that's what is so unusual about Christian artists like Keith Green or the guys in Striper or Amy Grant. They're plenty good enough to have made it outside of Christian circles. Singing about Jesus has always been more of an obstacle to widespread acceptance, more than it had been a gimmick or an in for them. Amy Grant and Striper actually did respectably well when they stepped mostly outside the Christian artist arena, thereby losing many of their Christian fans. That's not the way it is for most of us. If my songs were all Christian ones and were all about how much I love and how much we need church and Christian community and how the regular stuff just doesn't satisfy me the same way the spiritual stuff at church does, I'd be welcome to sing at a church. But no one's looking for people singing about problems in a church, not unless they're getting solved that very hour. When my friends and I let the meeting, as sole representative of God's voice and mind, heart and hand in our area, show what it had, what it could do, it didn't deliver. In fact, apart from the empty claims and the expectations of putting them above all other things on our calendars, it wasn't even trying. So we did. We went to the movies and bars with live music and poetry readings and so on, and tried to perform as regular people doing the regular things, treating others like regular people and without being a bunch of Christian douchebags or fulfilling the brethren prophecy that we'd all ruin our lives and become addicted to everything and likely end up alone or in jail filled with regret. We tried to succeed as regular folks in regular places. That didn't go very well. We were terrible people outside the brethren boundaries, outside their lifestyle and rules. We weren't prepared by our upbringing to engage with regular people leading regular lives. The Brethren community, when it came to social skills, spiritual enlightenment, depth, empathy, and utility, was holding a kind of special Olympics with people like Kim's dad, undisputed heavyweight champion of our Brethren world in it. Sometimes we think, as young people, as children, we can hide things from our parents. We say our parents don't know about it. We do this or we do that. And nobody knows. Sometimes, perhaps even those of us who are older, we think we can hide things from our brethren. We did things and didn't seem like anybody found out about it. But brethren, his eyelids try the children of men. He knows the very thoughts and intenses of our hearts. 
He looks into the very recesses and crevices of our hearts. We were here to save the world and be most people's only real experience and example of what God was like and what he wanted. We were supposed to be doing spiritual things, not natural ones. I noticed back then that when people of any stripe claimed to be doing better and more important things than regular folks, only a very few ever were, and the rest were not doing as well as regular folks, and were in fact being Christian or left-wing or right-wing or Richard Dawkins following douchebags, yet claiming victory all the same, claiming to be very, very important, claiming to be special people doing something special. And that claim somehow always made them worse than regular people who were just trying to be regular. They didn't fail and just be regular. They failed and were worse than regular. But we brethren folks all know what it's like to show any sign of enjoying that regular stuff. We're supposed to be too good for it, to have more refined tastes, to be searching for spiritual joy in the sense of purely imaginary. The Lord Jesus is coming, and what are we doing in this world? Why are we here? We should be here as a testimony to the Lord Jesus. Are we just marking time? Are we just trying to make it as comfortable for ourselves as possible? Chris, raised in our Brethren group, spoke of having joyful activities ruined by the suggestion that loving things too much made them idols, so you needed to surrender them to God for him to presumably safely incinerate for you upon his joy altar. Did you ever have that experience that you liked something and your parents tried to convince you that it was wrong and it spoiled the experience that you actually sort of believed them, that they were right, that it was bad? Probably something borderline of um, something becoming an idol. Right. I enjoying something. And so somebody would speak up and say, hey, is this becoming an idol? And so I could no longer enjoy it as much because I'm all of a sudden thought, well, maybe it is maybe. And so I would no longer. That's that's worse than just being forbidden to play. It's like they've actually gotten inside your head and ruined. Right. Yes. Meeting was very much inside my head. Melody raised in a very similar brethren group has a term for that kind of behavior. That's what I refer to as Jesus juking. Right. When you're just, you know, having a, doing whatever, playing football, playing cards. Not that anyone would ever play cards. And someone randomly acts just like Jesus did. And somebody says, wow, it would be great if you devoted that much energy to sharing the gospel. (laughs) Yeah. How about this old chestnut? Wow. We are really having fun playing soccer Friday nights. Like we're having so much fun. I think it's an idol. And I think yes. we should sacrifice it for God. Yes. Doesn't that make us show off Christians? There was a brethren assembly in the city of Seattle who had their um, big winter conference. And it was always on Super Bowl Sunday, Super right. Bowl weekend. And somebody suggested moving it because they enjoyed football. They wanted to watch football. Like many people did, not just one person. And uh, the response was, well, maybe it should be difficult to come to the conference. Maybe it should be a sacrifice. (laughs) Let's make it harder. John Spinks is Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, so like the full-on cult brethren. I felt hard done by because we had five meetings minimum a week. So Sundays we had three. And then we we had a prayer meeting Tuesday and a prayer meetings were like to pray for old women who had fallen over and Thursday nights we had Bible study which we called reading meeting um so we had all reading these meeting reading meeting was Bible study kind of um it's sort of like let's re-paraphrase the King James um 
Yes. Oh, yes. And Uh it was really tedious for those of us who'd been memorizing the King James since we were little and were perhaps at university studying Shakespeare. Maybe hearing insurance salesmen argue about what wither meant uh, got a little old after a few decades of that. Well, John had six on Sunday and one every other day. And they're mandatory that you would get kicked out if you didn't show at them. Oh, wow. And they they weren't all in the same town. So you had to commute to them. (laughs) So, yeah, it makes you realize that we could have been more of a cult by far than we were. That is horrifying. He's he's funny about it. But, yeah, it's it's bad. Ruth grew up in the same sort of brethren as the rest of us in Maine. So many stories. So when I was about four, I think it was four. And now that I'm a mom, I understand how little four years old is. I lost a favorite teddy bear. And I mean, I, this, is my, this is my buddy. This is my buddy that I slept with. I took him everywhere with me. He was really special. And I lost him. He was in a hotel in Massachusetts, and he wasn't coming back. And I was brokenhearted, as any four-year-old would be. And my dad told me, that bear must have been an idol to you. And so I guess that was formative and that growing up, anything that I loved, anything that I would be upset to lose was an idol. Mm -hmm. And that was used about so many things. Sherry, raised in our brethren group in New Jersey, remembers the culture of having joy in worldly pleasures such as music shot down. I do remember being shamed once by my aunt for listening to a worldly song that was popular at the time. That was, there's a Spanish style of music called reggaeton, which is kind of like a little bit of rap, but also they they tend to be kind of sexually suggestive songs. And one was me gusta la gasolina or something like that, which is I like gas, whatever. And she, I guess she could hear it through my headphones one time when I was traveling in a car with her. And she just said something like, hmm, you know, make sure you don't get burnt or something with that gas or something, something like that. Like, and I just remember feeling like really. That she was trying to make you feel awkward about what you were enjoying. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even remember the lyrics of the song. That was just the the chorus or the refrain. It was more so the beat that I was interested in. I didn't really, I don't remember the lyrics at all. To me, what's the really interesting question is what triggered her to feel that it needed her comment? Was it your joy or was the song sounded fun or was it actually the literal content of the song? Probably the association with worldliness and also maybe she paid more attention to the lyrics or someone had, you know, told her that this was bad or whatever. Maybe she just didn't like the style of music. And so she probably just disapproved because she didn't think it was proper or good enough for Christians or whatever. So I have this theory, maybe it's too cynical, but my theory is that when young people demonstrate enthusiasm and joy for something that's not a church thing, the church people get jealous and they say, we well, shouldn't like that because it's not a church thing. Do you think that that might be part of it? That's too fun and it's not church fun. That could very well be because especially for... For us, like, you know, anything that was smacked of any sort of sensuality was a big no-no. Because, mm. of course, you can't enjoy moving your body or drawing attention to yourself. Well, when I was when I was a young young one, um, the Macarena was a big one. And, oh, yeah. and, of course, all the white people were shyly doing the Macarena. 
and we had someone from the Dominican and she couldn't help it. She showed them how to do it right. Mm-hmm. And then said she was very embarrassed and she shouldn't move her body like that, but she couldn't stand to see how people from Michigan were interpreting the <laughs> Macarena. Very um, different. Well, yeah, I, I went, I went to a, I went to a Caribbean dance a couple of times mm-hmm. and uh, with some brethren friends and one of the ladies came over and she put her hand kind of in your lower back and said, yeah. you have to bend here. You can't yeah. keep this stiff. Yeah. And I know that some of my friends, their parents literally said, we don't move that part of our body. And then I started noticing mm-hmm. ballet and figure skating and the Highland dancing from Scotland. And I was like, what is the thing with white European people that all the dancing has to involve not bending your waist, keeping a stiff back and keeping your hips really immobile? I don't know why. Oh, that's interesting. Angel, born and raised in the Children of God cult, agrees with me that it's not really the corrupting nature of the song, sweater, or teddy bear that causes the negative reaction, but concern if members' attention and affections are elsewhere other than where the religious group wants them to be and control is threatened. They're objecting to a song or activity, and no one can really explain why it's so bad. And when you actually examine it, none of it holds together that it's being treated as being a big threat to the church. And yet it doesn't, the lyrics aren't that bad. Like, what is it? And the the trouble is it's too fun and it competes with the church. Why can't we listen to this music? Because the church has music this is competing with. Why can't we enjoy this story? Because the church has its own stories that it's competing with. So I think it's a competition thing. A hundred percent. Well, it's it's them wanting to remain in control of the power dynamic. Mm -hmm. And if you get any sort of joy or any sort of autonomy or self-reliance anywhere, they need to take it from you. Because again, they don't need them. Right. And that is my whole thing of like organized religion only works if there is a lack in your life. Mm-hmm. If you feel complete as a human being, you don't need a church. You don't need to follow someone else's rules. You don't need permission to live your life. Only if there is a lack will you then give away the power in your life. See, I wish so I they, felt complete. Yeah. It's hard to, when you leave, it should be awesome. You're thinking like, now I can do whatever I want. And, and you find yeah. that you don't know what to do. Cheryl, involved in more than one doomsday cult back in the day, relates. The more recent group that wasn't the full cult, but had cultish things uh, where we were made, if you wanted to remain, to reflect the head person. We had to be like them and we had to be restrained and just sit there so that we could receive the light from them. So if you had joy, but it wasn't time for joy, you would be squashed. I think you probably had some of that too. Yeah. Well, we were, all of our experiences were very curated and you were never allowed to have an experience that wasn't allowed you. And you certainly were not allowed to have an experience outside of the cults, really. Um, And if you did, it was curated beginning to end and then they would have to vet you and make sure that you experienced it in the way that they meant for you to experience it. Mm-hmm. So no new experiences equates to no new thoughts. Right. I mean, obviously we were freer, but they kept clamping down on pop culture things. And the thing that I noticed in terms of a pattern is they were targeting joy. If they ever saw us having joy, that wasn't their joy. Yeah. So you probably know what I mean. A hundred percent. They want to control when you feel good because you are only allowed to feel good when they decide you're allowed to feel good. And so anything that you take joy from will be taken from you. And Mm -hmm. that was a really big thing for me 
in my recovery was I realized I was never enthusiastic about anything because I didn't want to show that I loved something or that I liked something or that I enjoyed something because if I did, it would be taken from me. And they did this all the time, whether it was toys or friendships or romantic relationships or sibling relationships. I remember being separated from my baby sister because they were like, you're playing with her too much and you shouldn't be like you guys are laughing together. And so you're not going to see her again. And I didn't see her again for months. My particular group, the jargon was you're making that an idol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're putting it above God. Yeah. And that could be playing soccer. That could be singing anything. If there was joy and like, from what you just said, I think a lot of people didn't put together the joy component. I've definitely had the feeling of someone clipping my wings or, you know, taking the wind out of my sails. You're just having trouble remembering a specific one, but you definitely felt that, right? (laughs) Most recently, I felt it when I would get excited about something and Chris would poo-poo it for one reason or another. I told my neighbor, Emily, about one of my own many experiences of having the voice of death speak into what had been a moment of joy. We were at this house. The guy was very nice to have everybody over there, being really hospitable. And he had an organ. And our church doesn't have instruments, but he had an organ. And I was excited because an organ and I was bored because church youth group. And so I went over and started very quietly playing the organ. And one of the only things that I knew how to play was a theme from Chariots of Fire, which of course is an 80s movie uh, Mm -hmm. about somebody who refuses to run on Sunday, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So he's refusing to run Sunday because he's a Christian, I think. Mm -hmm. I think that's the plot. Well, ironically, this old guy didn't know the movie, didn't know it was about you can't run on Sunday, which is something that he firmly believed. So I'm playing the theme from Chariots of Fire very quietly and poorly. And he came over and reproachfully said, um, tomorrow's the Lord's Day. And that's a great example <laughs> where I had been trained to accept that as a fairly harsh rebuke. Tomorrow yeah. is the Lord's Day. But In today is today is Saturday. You know, it's not yeah. it's not it's not midnight. It's we're not Jewish. The sun is set and everything. But and the other thing is I'm playing the theme from a movie that's about not breaking the Christian Sabbath, quote unquote, Sunday. And you're accusing me of thereby breaking it. Like there's mm-hmm. several levels of stupid here. And this is mm-hmm. where when you're 17, you have to decide to feel, you know, very put out and he's stupid and I hate him or have the maturity to kind of laugh it off and realize he didn't understand. And it's his house and it's his organ and he doesn't know. And, it, it's mm-hmm. something to get mature enough to realize that, and actually, to be honest, we're infantilizing the adolescents, but they're also humoring us way too much. There's mm-hmm. way too much where teenagers do exactly what we ask them to do, and they have no respect for us asking them to do those things. They just think that you have to give them what they want to make them go away. Then we can go back on our phones. I think the the the, the online network of adolescent cultures is like a foreign civilization. We don't get it. We think we, we think we do because we put a picture on Instagram and we do not get it. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's okay and what's not okay. She shared in return her own similar experience. To, to bring up an experience that my brothers had, they were at a friend's house and they were playing a board game, Quelf. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a very silly board game yeah. and you have to do all sorts of silly things. And somebody, an older gentleman came into the room took one look at what was going on with all the silliness with this board game and just told everybody they had to pack it away because it was not honoring to god yeah so you know 
so anti-joy. And it's like, well, I, I feel, you know, that I'm too old now for that kind of silliness and jokiness. So nobody else can have it either. And I'm just going to say that it's not honoring to God. God uh, makes a very convenient excuse. I'm sure this is not what he was thinking, but that's the interpretation. You know, it's really nice when old people have young people mm-hmm. in their house, but a lot of times you can see that they regret having their house filled with young people. If you are, mm-hmm. you know, 75 years old and you have this perfectly kept house that you maybe built yourself and a farm that you, you know, have left to your grandchildren. And then suddenly you've got 30 or 40 young people in there. I can see that it's it, it's unsettling. Even as a teacher, I know that the, the energy levels of young people jostle. My mom uses the word jostle. Don't jostle me. She used to say when we were kids, uh, there's just mm-hmm. sudden shrieks and running and dropping mm-hmm. things and breaking things that are just too upsetting that teenagers don't mind. But people that are older really yeah. starts to bug you. When you're looking at the female experience within the church, the older generation of women are um, the caretakers of purity culture you know in relation to women and enforcing those standards and um much of what is happening in retrospect i can see that it was like a resentment of that person's youth it's like i'm not young anymore you know i have lines on my face and so on and so forth and i don't have that youthful exuberance so yeah it is a resentment of youth for sure and and I think like to extend beyond the female experience to the the experience of all young people, it's like, it's almost like there's two things going on. So there's, oh, we love our young people. They bring so much more joy and energy to the church. And then it gets like, whoa, 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 not that amount of joy and energy. Just cool it, guys. Yes. Like that's too much. I really think you're onto something. I'm assuming that was a thing when you were younger. Is it still a thing that people try to exert influence over your life patterns? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, maybe not as much anymore because this church is much better than they are much looser than the previous brethren. But, you know, I mean, I'm 46 and my dad will still try to (laughs) offer guidance. He has this, this is a brethren thing, this need to control Mm -hmm. um, the little things, you know, and this is, we've talked about this before, women's clothing, women's hair, the way women behave in public, uh, the way women speak in public or don't speak. Um, lots of little control things. Obviously, it was the women who have spoken mostly about the adjustments of women's behavior, but almost all of them, when asked about it, all of their an- anecdotes largely involved women controlling their behavior. They presented the idea that their clothing was commented on by women. And oh, yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. My clothing is always commented on by women, although... I will say in my gospel hall church, um, there was a man, an elder, who would like to comment on my gum chewing, how it reminded him of a cow. Mm-hmm. And there was uh, one of my roommates went to church once without nylons on, and he stared at her knees, the, like so markedly that other people noticed it. The entire service. Do you think it's possible that this isn't really a sexuality thing and it's more of like, it's disrespectful, like it's, it's, it's not suiting my old fashioned sensibilities. It seems new to me. I think it's, um, so uh, someone who commented on my sister's clothing was also a man. It was the same 19 year old who prayed for those on beds of affliction. He was trying He's to be like, old. He was like a, a, a wannabe. He old. was, yes, he was trying to be old. That's exactly it. He was 
grasping for this sophistication, I mean, in our circles, this would have been a sophisticated grasp of spiritual matters to comment on, oh, I can see your knees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. And like I say, this has... This hasn't gotten any smarter on Twitter or in the world at large. A whole bunch of this has come out. So, I mean, I was raised with all of this discussing about, you know, women's clothing and the wholesome edification of everything. And, you know, we had a church division, big stupid fights over little stupid things. And I came out and thought, well, in the world, I can speak freely. And sure enough, no, there's all sorts of people who can complain about this or that, how this is worded and what's the preferred term for this or that. I had been asked to dance on stage um, with some of my friends who were much better dancers than I was. So it was an honor to be asked anyways, to go and dance on stage um, at church during this one song one Sunday. And so I went and um, as far as I knew, I was suitably dressed. And then when I, anyways, it was a great experience. You know, um, I remember feeling not just honored to have been asked, but also feeling um, joy and connection while I was up there dancing. And when I came off the stage, um, I was pulled aside by another older woman and spoken to about the way I dressed and how the way I was dressed was problematic. And it was not actually that any of my skin had shown, but it was just that, you know, when I raised my arms in worship, my belt showed. And so I was just, you know, so close to being immodest. That shouldn't have even happened. You know, I, my belt should not have even shown. My shirt should have been long enough that not even that should have shown because, you know, just a centimeter higher and a slight strip of stomach skin would have showed. Right. And it really ties into what you were saying because that killed the joy of the experience right away. You know, I was up there, I had been asked, I was feeling connection. I was worshiping with my friends and then I came off and for, you know, the millionth time is what it felt like at that point, somebody pulled me aside and Mm -hmm. talked to me about my immodesty and my rebellious behavior and how I was unsuitable as a young Christian woman. Yep. Yeah. Cause your, your personality was not modest. That's, that's the thing. Like it was more in a person kit could dress the two women could dress the exact same way. And if one had a more dominant personality, they would be considered um, the dirty one. Mm-hmm. And the other one would be like, Oh, well, you know, and I don't want to dismiss the concept of rape culture, but I want to mm-hmm. suggest that it's, it, there's more to it than just rape culture in that scenario. It it wasn't that she came to you and said, I'm very concerned that if you dress this way, you might get raped. Like that's not what happened. And in my, because I work in a school, I see this. It's always female people who go and approach people, of course. And it's always girls who are of concern. The guys like take their shirt off and, you know, we'll tell them to put their shirt on, but it's not the same. And when girls, you know, we feel are immodest, Women speak to them and they're not talking about rape. They're not even talking about men at all. They're, they're going to them. And the only thing I can compare it to is they're usually older women. They're acting like they have been visually assaulted in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, I agree. It's almost like, um, 
in communities, I, I'm just going to speak from the point of view of being in a religious community because that's my experience. Mm -hmm. But in a religious community where there are high standards for female dress and female behavior, um, the caretakers of that piece of the culture are the women. So, you know, it is very rare that I was ever spoken to about the way I was dressed by a man it was always being admonished by a woman. So I've long said, and I say this as a feminist, but I've said for many years now that women are complicit in their own oppression. They've swallowed this mm -hmm. um, idea of anti-female culture and they are the perpetrators of it more often than not, unfortunately. Something I've heard on this that, I don't know. I'm still thinking about this. Somebody said that men are very competitive and that when men compete, there's no doubt. We know we're competing and we know what the rules are. And we know who's breaking them and we know who we like that he won and we know who we don't like that he won. It's pretty simple. Um, the suggestion was that women are also competing all the time in various different ways. And if we're not talking about, you know, women's soccer, if it is something like who is the most pure yet marriageable young woman, the rules for how women can win at that game and not completely have the entire female community turn on them and say that you won by cheating or by doing something that wasn't okay with us. It seems like an impossible thing to navigate by comparison. Yeah, I think it's tricky. I mean, we have a lot of um, words for female competition um, within this world of being a woman, um, the mom wars come to mind where, you know, oh, we're all mothers together now. So let's all compete to prove who is the most organic yeah. mother. Or <laughs> um, Who's the wine mom with the best profile picture? Or? Within religious circles, it can certainly be, you know, who is the most pious um, female. Um, it, there's just all sorts of ways in which it manifests. Yeah. And I think a lot of it boils down to envy as well. You're looking at this person, this other female, and instead of seeing a sister or, you know, somebody who's a partner in this whole experience of being a woman, you see a threat and you see something that makes you feel inadequate. So instead of looking at yourself and saying, okay, I feel inadequate right now, that's something about me and I need to work on myself and find out why it is that I'm feeling inadequate and, you know, just do the internal work that it takes to improve um, my self-confidence. Instead of doing that, we project our feelings of inadequacy onto the other person and say, okay, well, it's their fault. Mm -hmm. You know, they're dressing like a slut or they're behaving in a rebellious manner or they're completely disobedient um, to the teachings of the church or whatever. It just kind of makes me think of being in high school um, and being about 5'2", I suppose, in early high school and having people in my grade who were 6'2". And there's no question of me disapproving of them for being too tall or for walking around being that tall or if they wore cowboy boots that made them taller. Certainly, there wouldn't have been this judging them for making themselves even taller with the boots. There was just the, this acceptance of you are six foot tall. So there you are. Um, and same thing with strength, same thing with brains. I think... I don't know that in male circles, there was very much of this sort of resenting people who won or were gifted in some way. And, you know, observing the classroom, we're Canadian. So we always ask, are they nice? And so if someone meets Brad Pitt, 
we're not going to say, well, I don't think he's very handsome. He he's putting, putting on too much makeup in his movie. Like, we don't do that. We're like, yeah, he's incredibly handsome. But we always ask, is he nice? Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe, maybe he's not nice. At least that's, I think, the limit. I repeated Albert Hayhoe's fond memory of the older man who went around tucking in all the show hankies of the young men at church who fashionably had them poking out just like zoot suit wearing jazz listening Harlem pimps. It doesn't sound like much, but in those days it was considered quite the thing to have a white handkerchief sticking out of your pocket, and I'm afraid I was one of the first ones to do it. And Brother Watson <laughs> knew very well that this was just a sign that I might be heading in the wrong direction. So sure enough, as I might expect it, after meeting that dear man, because he loved me, came up and reached out his hand with a big, broad smile, and as he grasped my hand with one hand, he tucked the handkerchief in with the other and said, glad to see you at meeting, Albert, and away he went. Why did he do that? He wasn't trying to be rude. He wasn't trying to be funny. He loved my soul. And every little thing that he saw about us that he felt might lead us in the wrong direction, he loved and he cared enough to speak to us in such a wise and loving way, too. I love the memory of that, brother. Sure, he was not impressed with this. It was like a gesture of love that he would do that because he loved them. And it just makes me cringe. Yeah, no, that's, that's not okay. Tim, being born into a Jehovah's Witness group, knew about normal things like birthdays being forbidden. In terms of your life while you were a Jehovah's Witness, what were some of the things that you couldn't do that the other kids could do? I mean, obviously, birthdays, right? Well, that was a thing. You know, now that's an interesting point, too. My my dad, Steve, I mean, I never, never got a birthday present, no Christmas presents. Fast forward to today, he actually, he's, 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 He's in his 70s, and he's married to a Filipino gal half his age, and she was Catholic. And I got a Christmas card from him the last few years. So, you know, things have changed a little bit there. He must have. Yeah. When his mother moved them to a brethren group, Tim felt things got stricter still. What are some examples of that? Like, what strikes your memory as ways that the Grace Brethren limited your life when you wanted to be a child going out to it? Oh, I mean... I'm sure you remember if you were the, the uh, anti rock and roll uh, propaganda that was out there. I mean, it had me terrified, man. But you know what? I, I, I was coming to understand, and you, you probably know this. If you want to get somebody to do something or be be interested in something, tell them they can't. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know it's, it's tell Adam and Eve, and I can't eat that apple. Right. <laughs> That's going to make them go, well, why not? Why not? What's up that? And, and that was what I think they. I think that the, the maybe the guys in charge of that brethren thing meant well, or at least they're sure. They, I don't know. Now that I'm older, I'm like, what? What the hell are you doing, telling all these kids that they're gonna, you know, all, all these horrible, scary stories because they listen to ACDs? Mm-hmm. Oh, what were you trying to do? And it's so much stuff. Tim was taught from a young age that the very best rock and roll guitarists had, like Robert and Tommy Johnson claimed, sold their souls to Satan to learn rock and roll guitar in 10 easy lessons with Lucifer. I wonder if that contributed to Tim deciding that if he really wanted to be good on guitar, that this was how the pros did it. But actually, most pros just practiced a lot. I shared with professional punk bassist Kim my own first electric bass experience. In I think it's season one of my podcast is my first electric bass memory. 
I was just starting to listen to like some Neil Young, like electric. So like, yeah. this is, this is before rocking in the free world. I was listening to like, yeah. Hey, 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 my, my rock and roll can never die. And I was trying to yeah. reconcile the fact that the, the, the guitars were distorted as hell. And that was supposed to be ugly and it was supposed right. to be evil and scary. And I was kind of liking it a little bit. It kind of felt like it spoke to me. And at the school, we didn't have an electric guitar at school. And I didn't have a guitar of any kind. Um, I was also listening to U2, which is pretty predictable. If you're a Christian person, you're supposed to listen to U2. Yeah, That's mandatory. It happened to all of us. <laughs> so the music room, for some reason, had a 70s electric bass. It had like the nickel like covers that go over the pickups. And it had that 70s like orangey i can't even describe it but you, you can picture that it had like a weird speckly spackled 70s looking thing going and i took that thing home and i was determined to learn how to play with or without you on it you know the the chords that are in all the pop songs so d oh, yeah. d a b minor g and i didn't know that and i was learning and i figured it out i was all excited my mom came in and she looked at me with an electric bass when i was a little kid and she said what would mrs hayho think if she could see you now she has thought. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But but I I I got a message from that. I, it scared me. I I was thinking like, oh, I guess this is bad, or this looks bad, or this is not okay. And and I was thinking, I'm not even I'm not even playing like I'm not even like playing. We're not going to take it by Twisted Sister on a whammy. Yeah. You know, doing the solo with the whammy out or anything. All I'm doing, I'm not playing. You know you're going to burn in hell. I'm not playing, no. you know, any of that. I'm playing you too. And I'm playing it on electric bass. It's not even distorted. Um, yeah. And yet it looked like rock and roll. And then yeah. that, that with those green Mohawk comments, it was, it's a weird memory. Of course, I remember yeah. all of it, you know, yeah. profoundly depressed, trying to express myself and was being told that this was, it was dangerous. And can you guess what, what effect that has when you tell kids it's dangerous? Yes. You got to do that. You weren't supposed to listen to punk. When did you start? Uh, well, I mean, I just liked music. I would, my uncle always listened to like the Beach Boys and shit. And I would drive well, around. His why were and... the Beach Boys okay at Young People's? Everyone was allowed to listen to them. Oh, I hate okay. I hate them I for that reason. I, mean, I, I just listened to shit in my uncle's car. And, you know, then I'd like go to the mall and like buy a tape or a CD and then I just started buying, like, you know, I had my little CD collection and my little disc bin, and I just, you know, I'd buy Beatles albums. And, you know, that I just kind of started giving myself, like, a history of rock and roll, you know, and working my way through sort of all these things. And See, that that's what I did. That's that's what I understand. Everything, you know? The punk part is what has me fascinated at what point, because... Like I played in a lot of bands and we didn't have genres yeah. and you know what I'm talking about that if, if someone says, what are you? And you say, I'm a blues, we're a blues band. We're a jazz yeah. band. We're a folk that helps. If you say we're a punk band, people know what you are sort of, and we never yeah. had that. I think that just kind of happened. Like what do you consider a punk band? We're more of a punk rock band. You're not, you know, we're not hardcore punk band, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's just like a, a mixture of so many things that, I liked to listen to kind of coming in and then just being that little bit extra, you know, taking, making a little bit faster, making it a little bit like louder, adding those screams in. I don't know what like the defining moment of making that kind of music was, you know, obviously you listen to, you know, the clash and dead Kennedys and all these things, but I wouldn't say those are like the big influences of my musical career. You know, I would say more like the pixies and Nirvana and, you know, these types of oasis are more like the mm -hmm. what drove me to that. I think it's just like 
that little bit of extra energy that kind of pushes it over into the punk genre, maybe. And yeah. you know what? Some people might argue that it's not even punk. So it's it's And I don't care about that. I remember, you know, being taught that the distorted guitar was dangerous and evil and and I and I legitimately believed my parents when they told me that the rock musicians were mostly Satanists and they're trying to like fool us into joining they Satanism. Never told me that shit. No one told me stuff no? like that. No one told me that rock musicians were Satanists. Like no one explained things to me. I just it just wasn't allowed to be around, you know? Maybe that's a good thing about being being female. Like with me, they wanted to make sure that I didn't, you know, believe anything wrong. And I think women often nobody respected you enough to even tinker with your thinking as deeply. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I think it's important to mention that we weren't really being protected from stuff our parents thought was bad for us so much as our being held to a high standard of faithfulness to our culture, never cheating on the meeting with the A-team or the Blue Jays or Madonna, and most importantly, making sure our performance, Living for Show Lives, sent a clear, simple, church-is-all message. Ruth and I talked about this. Just the feeling that you had done something that was right in your own conscience, or the feeling that you knew that you had not done something wrong, but that there was an appearance of evil. Now, you and I know that appearance of evil is better translated forms of evil. But if you were to do something that someone didn't like the look of, they would say, oh, that's an appearance of evil. It doesn't look right. I can't tell you the times that you were told we couldn't do X, Y, Z because it didn't look right. It's funny they didn't use the word performative, but they kept on talking about sending the wrong message or leading people astray, those looking on. It was so performative, all the language that we used. Creating a stumbling block. Yes. Always stumbling blocks. Speaking of appearances, same-sex attracted brethren missionary Ed getting swole at the gym with the lads until he looked like the rock writ short, deeply upset his fellow brethren by taking gym selfies that had Latina girls in workout gear and posting them on Instagram with the girls in frame. Despite what Ed's sexual orientation eventually was revealed to be, fit gym girls wearing their Lululemons in a picture on Instagram with him was deemed unacceptable, and at that point, Ed always did what was asked of him and deleted those pictures. That stuff only works if you care, but we are trained from birth to, and many of us can't seem to stop. Ed, didn't you have like uh, weird situations that you're going to the gym and taking selfies and people were uncomfortable because there was like girls in the pictures in spandex? And- uh, that was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I had a group of people from the gym, like my close friends from the gym, they all were straight people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had gay friends, but they, my close friends were straight people mm-hmm. and they were married, but their spouses, everything is focused on the bodies, you know, and, and the way you, you show yourself. And we don't have winter time to wear coats and, and jackets. <laughs> we have all year long. <laughs> yeah. Very, very, very hot uh, summer. And and then, um, yeah, I post a picture with, they were celebrating my birthday and they were around me, but they were like, you know, you know, showing themselves, you know. They're wearing they regular, were, regular workout clothes. And so, and there was people from my home assembly saying like, why these women were, you know, like trying to be close to me. People who in BC, 
like people from my mother's uh, home assembly. Yeah. Oh, they were saying all kind of stuff. Some people even removed me. And some people say, how you dare to call yourself like a missionary when you are posting with people who wear, wear clothes and like prostitutes and, and you know, people are <laughs> like, and I was, and I was like, I am not even attracted to these people. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking that very thing. But, and now of course you moved to Canada. So you've got the, the memo. It's all wearing a red plaid shirts that we wear. I have a blue plaid shirt on right now, which that's what we do, right? <laughs> wear the red plaid shirts. Definitely. That's one of my favorite looks. Oh gosh, wow! And he's it, gay, so that's not a not an issue for him. But but they it, again, it's appearances, it's performative. They're saying like, right. you're a missionary. Uh, missionaries can work out, but mm-hmm. if you take a picture in the gym, make sure that if any girls are wearing their workout gear, kick mm-hmm. them out of frame, please, because it's dishonoring to your your testimony. <sighs> I wish that were surprising, but it's not. It hasn't really no. changed. And again, sex, everything's about sex. And then you look in the Bible right. and it's not all about that. So little about it. It was actually codified in the literature that they gave us young people to read. There was one book that it was given to me as a prize for completing. It wasn't Bible searchers, but it was similar to Bible searchers. Anyway, I completed a certain number of these Bible study papers and I was given this book as a prize. And the book that I was given was written by a brethren woman. And it was all about this young woman who once she converted to becoming a brethren woman, she gave up this beautiful, rich clothing that she wore and wore simple, modest, quote, quote, modest clothing. Or there were these other women in the story who had beautiful singing voices and they could have made a career and they gave up those singing voices in order to be nurses um, and uh, missionaries or whatever. And that's exactly what you're talking about. This was codified. This was given to us as our role models. And what does the word modest mean in the brethren? In the brethren, it's always modest is always referring to women. It is always referring to not showing boobs or knees to no makeup because, you know, Jezebel painted her face. So obviously, if you wear makeup, you're Jezebel. Of course. But it, what I understand about the the Catholic faith is when the Catholics speak of modesty, they're not talking about purity culture. They're not talking about the length of skirts or showing cleavage. They're talking about modesty and one's lifestyle and not being ostentatious with one's flashy car or one's brilliant home or how much money one has. They're talking about just a modesty of one's whole life. Because that's from Paul's epistles. Yes. You know, to me, it doesn't sound like sex is the problem. It sounds like wealth is the problem. He simply doesn't say, let the beauty of godly women not be characterized by cleavage and tight pants. He he talks about costly raiment and apparel and like elaborately, you know, expensively hairdressed, braided hairstyles. He's talking about haves and haves not, isn't he? Yeah. So I think he's saying that modesty in the sense of if you have a bunch of Christian people, don't Mm -hmm. make it a pageantry of wealth. Right. I don't think it has anything to do with cleavage, honestly. I don't believe it does either. I've come to that place. Not not that I don't think that Jewish women in that century, what women do in our culture, I'm assuming would be completely alien. They couldn't imagine it. And I'm not yeah. saying shame or I'm just saying it, it'd be foreign. Like right. they, they wouldn't understand. It's just, that's, that's a fact, right? Right. I don't think it was the, I'm sure people use the, the apostle, you know, 
what would the apostle have to say about yoga pants? What would the apostle have to say about, you know, <laughs> sleeveless dresses? And what would the apostle <laughs> have to say about mini skirts and certain Spaghetti shoes? Straps. Oh, yeah. And like, I wanted to wear tank tops. I wasn't allowed to wear tank tops. I told Angel about befriending outgoing creative people whose train I wanted to hitch onto to do things our church suppressed with scary levels of success. Things like having a personality. I think I'm fairly introverted. And when I was a teenager, I was hanging around with more introverted, more quiet, more subdued, more whatever people. And when I started latching on to true extroverts of a certain kind, I was trying to pick up tips and tricks, essentially. And I just found them endlessly entertaining and wondered how to be like that. And I think later in life, what I found is those people don't stay around necessarily. They're not necessarily the most reliable people and they've all gone and I'm alone most of my life. You know, I don't live in LA. I live in the woods and there's those people that show up that help you out. And often they're not extrovert. They're not that funny, but they are so nice. And I think later in life, I've started to really get an appreciation for nice people. Whereas when I was in my twenties, I was looking for the funniest person that I could find in the room. Yeah. I think it really changes as you grow and as you really realize, because I think that growing up the way we did, we didn't see normal humanity. Mm-hmm. We saw everybody with cult personality. And so when you actually go out into the world and then you actually run up against normal personalities, you learn different things. You learn mm-hmm. to look for different things and you learn that people actually act very, very mm-hmm. differently when they are supportive of you. When somebody actually is on your side and they want to see you do good things and they want to see you grow and thrive, they will press you towards that. They will give you tools for that and they will constantly encourage you. And it's just a completely different way of life. And it can feel like that's dangerous. It can feel like, what are they setting me up for? And it's like nothing. They're just a good person and you've never run across one before. John grew up in the Plymouth Brethren group that I have no qualms about calling a cult and told me about the kinds of limits they had. I've asked some people about how they dressed um, in terms of what was cool in high school or how did they dress and were there any expectations? Now, I think there, there were some very specific prohibitions in your group when you were growing up as far as clothing and fashion. Yes, uh, you couldn't wear jeans in the meeting for the men, this is. Uh, white shirts on a Sunday were the, the staple. Mm-hmm. Uh, hair had to be short. You couldn't have side burns here you certainly could not have facial hair like yourself or myself mm-hmm. at all um which was quite weird because uh, every single household literally has photographs of the men of, of the men of god on their lounge wall mm-hmm. and the and darby jane darby the founder he, one of the founders, he had a lot of hair, facial hair oh yes and then effie raven had a huge bushy beard yeah and mustache uh, and then James Taylor had a mustache. And was this the uh, the Bible verse that was cherry picked to make all the people shave? Because it happened at rather it happened all across the world uh, the same weekend, I think. And wasn't it something about the mowing of the wickedest sin, or something about plowing or mowing or something? And that's, therefore, all the men had to shave. I never got to know why. Uh, read a I read a few books by ex-members, and I think that's the justification. They just took like a a, a phrase out of the Old Testament about about the harvest or something which therefore there was a, a weekend when all the plymouth brethren christian churchmen in the entire world had to lose the sideburns and facial hair um it's even more disturbing what happened with the the family pets maybe you could talk about what happened with dogs and cats yes uh, well uh, pet, pets were absolutely fine and normal to have 
And then uh, one day, the man of God uh, bans them completely. And uh, since then, I've, I've met three people whose dogs were put down the next day. Mm-hmm. They were killed. And uh, people either put them down, they uh, immediately sold them or gave them away. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were those three, of course, dogs, dogs and cats. And uh, when I look back now, um, I did a video on this in the video channel I do uh, about pets. Because I come across people, you know, who ask me about these cult, the, the cult dogs in, and they just can't believe how, how how on earth that could be justified, you know. It's, it's just horrifying. Were you allowed pets? Absolutely. Um, I'd never heard of such a thing that they would forbid pets. I, I don't even think there's anything similar. When you were a child, were, were men allowed to wear ties Sunday morning? Or was that already not allowed? Uh, already not allowed. Already not allowed. Yeah. And the reason, because it was vanity or vain or... Why couldn't you wear ties? Because I notice now that you keep having these uh, Plymouth Brethren Christian Church folks on their website proudly proclaiming how much they're not a cult. And they put a picture of them. And they're all dressed identically. And it looks like the most culty thing I can see, including all these people dressed as businessmen who are businessmen who don't have ties because they're not allowed. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how women were to dress and were not to dress. Yeah, uh, no makeup whatsoever. Uh, no hair dye. Uh, no cutting of their hair. I once heard that one sister got rebuked by another sister for trimming her hair ends. Mm-hmm. They had to wear a headscarf whenever they went outside. And when I was growing up, uh, the poor little girls had to wear a headscarf for school, which would have made them stand out from other girls. That has gone by the wayside with the latest ministry. Now they have a token, don't they? It's like a little... Yeah, a little head, head token, some little bow or something. It's like a bow. It's, 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 and a token of submission, like obviously... Um, the wearing of the headscarf was a gesture of being under the authority of men, and all they've done is scale it down. But they they wear those everywhere. Like if they're out of the house, they're wearing the token on their head, aren't they? That's right. I believe they are. Yes. Certainly, no trousers of any kind for women. Absolutely no trousers whatsoever for mm-hmm. women, and no no masculine clothes, and uh, no earrings, of course, no jewelry whatsoever. No tattoos for any members. No, certainly not. And, and, and their dresses would always be uh, below the knees Yes. as well. And yeah, I mean, all this list of things you're reminding me of, Mike, these things are just based on so much superstition and fear. And it's weird yeah. how normal it can seem at the time. And it isn't at all normal. Well, well I think it's quite logical. When you're born into something and all you ever know and all the, all the people you're surrounded with, including your obviously family and parents, uh, uh, they normalize it for you. Then yes, it, it is. It is, is absolutely. And this is how these uh, so many different sorts of variety of cults is because people just follow each other and but you know the old birds and feather flock together. Syndrome, mm-hmm. isn't it? I asked Cheryl why she thought people seemed to take delight in destroying other people's joy. There's a variety of reasons. Let's stomp on your joy because I'm not. I don't have joy right now, and how dare you have it? I'm jealous. Let's stomp on your joy because you're actually celebrating something that hurts me, so I'm going to destroy it. Let's stomp on your joy uh, because it just makes me feel more joyous to know that I'm better than you. You know, that's it's just there's a whole menu of reasons why we would stomp on someone else's joy and it all has to do about ourselves my sister debbie speaks about the need our family had for my father to appear to always be in a leadership position and control of the family at all times any of us knowing or thinking anything he wasn't completely up to speed on and understanding threatened that apparently but it was also in stark contrast to the fact that mom 
that would never be permitted in, in our, on Dad's watch. Well, we, we had to do things right. We couldn't just pretend or perform. We weren't being performed. We were supposed to actually do it. But well, well, Mom also didn't know shit. Remember? Right. She was because like the was bottom more, of his... because she was more intelligent. That was yeah. the problem, and and he needed. But to... again, that's a fit. That was a pattern, right? You yes. couldn't know that you knew anything. If you were, it, because some of these people had such fragile egos that ha- whatever had happened to them, um, I'm just going to put it out there that when when you have to crush another person and when you have to trash another person, um, it's not a sign that that other person is a problem. It's a sign that you feel that small, yeah. that you have to spend your time doing that. And that was a big deal. That's part of why dad, you know, uh, had mom crushed and a lot of, and, and, and that you couldn't celebrate the things that you were good at when you couldn't, you know, girls couldn't be attractive. They had to be nice and nice meant you didn't know what your power was and you were modest at all times and you made sure to be demure. Demure is the word. Yes. Evan says his church doesn't attempt the level of control many of ours did. I think my church wants as many people to come out as they can. And what they've maybe found through trial and error is if you're constantly trying to meddle in their life, it's not going to work out. Uh, people don't want to come in and be lectured at. People want to come and be how they are. So my church like doesn't really ask me to be anything. Now I'm a I'm you know for what it's worth I'm a polite guy. I'm not coming to church and swearing all the time. Like I'm not giving them a lot of reason to intervene. And frankly, because I don't have family in the church, they don't know much about my personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be difficult for them to do it. But I think the scare of losing even one young person in the church has sort of put them in a position to not say anything. Yeah, I think um I think for me it was it was more of a a family trait on my dad's side because um there was a sense of you'd be okay as long as you um didn't know anything and you know never um acted in any way that you might, you know, have be any talent at something. And I remember specifically getting um accepted to Queen's University and I was pretty freaking happy because I didn't know I could get in there. I had no concept of that my grades were high and that that was even an option. And I remember um being very well trained by that point or just knowing that um, this wasn't something that I could go around smiling about um, because I had an aunt that would be very jealous of that um, if her kids didn't get in there or if she thought somehow I thought, you know, that I was better than one of her kids in any way. So I remember like just being on, I, I basically kind of kept a secret. I was hiding it because I didn't want to get punished mm-hmm. for doing well at something. And that's that was a real thing that you could get, you know, you get punished and what i mean by that is sort of you know gossiped about ostracized maybe put down in front of other people you know it it was a big it was a it was a pressure it was awful and also not being able to be attractive like Mm -hmm. if if i was more attractive than another girl and you know at or if i thought i was god forbid so i remember my one great aunt um that was uh aunt judy who is not really a church person, not really a cult person. She was definitely from the outside and maintained that. Um, I went for a walk with her and I confessed that I got into Queens. It was like my mm-hmm. confessional, like, well, I got into Queens University. And she was like, oh, are you kidding? And she actually gave me like a huge a hug. Response. She was excited. And then she looked me in the eye and she said, 
don't you dare hide this because mm -hmm. you think other people are going to be jealous. She said, you enjoy it and be happy because you deserve this. The only person, even my mother wouldn't ha say that. And she was your great aunt because she was great, not because she was not, old. She was not old. I mean, she was great. As in, she was a, she was a, a she was eyes from the outside yeah. who were inside. And I always appreciated the people that were somehow were inside this cult, but never lost their vision from the outside and were able to, you know, basically able to, to give me a little bit of therapy at that time. That, that was therapy to be told, um, you earned this. Why, you know, you don't have to hide it. Ruth feels that silly nonsense we loved, like Star Trek, had valuable real-world benefits we were being cut off from. The things that I complained most about as a kid was not Ooh. being able to see Star Trek, not being able to see Star Wars, not being able to listen mm -hmm. to things like CCR, like music that sounded good even to Plymouth Brethren ears. Right, um, right. Was that serious and cutting us off from our culture and from joy and a natural way of being or was it actually trivial and we shouldn't be fussing about it it was incredibly incredibly important that's that stuff that we that we're talking about that is formative that is absolutely essential like stuff like music i feel like music is essential to life, just as essential in its own way is water and food. Things like Star Trek and Star Wars, entertainment isn't just entertainment. It's so much more than that. It, it's, it's about shaping and forming how we think and how we see the world. And I feel like entertainment today, as always, has so much responsibility to be a force for good. Like I think about Star Trek and the messages of Star Trek. Star Trek has inspired so many people to go out and turn around and become engineers and scientists. It inspired Nichelle Nichols to recruit women and minorities into NASA. So it has real world, real life implications what would you say to the argument that it inspired atheists to become atheists? I think they're going to be atheists anyway. And I honestly think that Christians make people atheist, make people turn to atheism. I kind of agree, but I'm devil's I'm, advocate in that because, you know, um, as a kid, I liked, well, I liked both, but honestly, right. I, I was, I was always a Spock fan. And what I liked wow. most about him was the mysterious alienness about him. Besides the solitude and the emotional control, which I identified wow. with, there was this idea that he was part of a race of people who knew secret things that, that seemed supernatural or mystical to us. Yeah. Considering, I thought it's brilliant that when they created this alien race, they start off with being this hyper computer brain, super logical, scientific, emo emotionless people. But then when right. you dig deeper, they start reaching into Judaism and other they're virtually kind of Buddhist in a lot of ways. They start doing Buddhist, that. Very Jewish. Yeah. Yes. And so that's, that's interesting to me that that mixes there. And then I like star Wars. And once again, I was fascinated by the Jedi. Like that's in a way what I wasn't getting at meeting the idea that there are mysterious things that, that you can learn about from wise old that's, people. That is, that's making me think, do you think we were, frightened of anything mysterious anything mystical we wanted everything laid down we wanted to have spiritual experiences but we didn't want to have anything that was mysterious anything that was mystical we were frightened of I think, it, think? I think it was competition because you were saying that 
music is so important. Well, obviously, the Christian answer to that is, well, we do have music. We have the contemporary Christian music. We have the, the Victorian Christian hymns. And I think you'd agree with me that saying that you can have music, but only the specially sanctioned music, that doesn't work, does it? Oh, my goodness. No, no, it does not work. Because music, nobody likes all the music. You have to find music that speaks to your heart speaks and expresses you. your heart. Yes. And I always needed music to express so my subjective. sorrow. Oh, yes. So one of the reasons why the Plymouth Brethren music appealed so much to me was it is all Victorian sorrow stuff. And that is it how is. I felt inside. So when I went out Sunday morning, well, that's how I felt inside all the time. So right. it wasn't like I needed breaking a bread to make me feel that. That's the way I really did feel. And and that's not not healthy, I don't think. I'm not sure. Oh, that just made me think of the breaking of bread hymns. I love them so much. Mm-hmm. Because do you remember, we used to take and sing only the sorrowful oh, stanzas. Yeah. We would take and leave the other stanzas that were on a more hopeful note. Part of that the people wouldn't know if they're not used to our style of church is it's a story. So the first part of the story is damnation awaits, hellfire awaits. So the first part of the story is the obedience, the love of God to send Jesus, the obedience of Jesus to come with us where we are. Then the, the climax of the story is that he gives his life for us. And it's not time to be triumphant until he resurrects and so most people's church isn't like this that the flow of that hour was it starts with jesus coming intending to die and dying Mm -hmm. and remaining dead and then Mm -hmm. resurrecting and triumph Mm -hmm. and most of us most most times sunday morning we didn't really know how to do the last part very well so we would just we sort of wallow. Stuck. Yeah, we'd wallow in the death. So Jesus right. in the tomb, we're very comfortable because it's our fault. And we could sing about Jesus being in the tomb, right. and lo, you know, low in the grave he lay. And, you know, exactly. head once full of bruises, so full of pain and scorn and all On these other. same night, Lord Jesus. Right. All it's, it's all about him dying and being dead. And right. what you're talking about is the habit of someone giving out a hymn which is suggesting a hymn that that we were going to sing with no instruments. Of course, giving it out. And interestingly, in the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church of the cult wing of of us, um, only women are allowed to suggest hymns. That's a shock. But think about it. A woman would never dream But think about it. Feelings, emotions. Right. That's their job. The men are not expected to have feelings and emotions. And and many of those hymns were written by Fanny Crosby and other women as well. So Very true. The idea that women handle the emotions, that doesn't surprise me at all to hear in the brethren that they still do that. But I understand the reasoning behind it. That is very clear. But it seems to me that the way we saw it was that only men could be guided by the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Holy Spirit had his favorite hymns, as you remember. Yes. But but that that idea that, that we're getting to that somebody would say like, let's sing hymn number, they would say, brethren, let us sing hymn number 253. And there'd be like 300 of these ones to choose from. And they'd say one and they had like about five tunes between all of them. We'd sing them at half speed and drop a half pitch and key every single verse. And uh, what would happen is very often they would say, 
um, you know, Brethren, may we sing hymn number 253, the first three stanzas only. Because the, first three stanzas, yes. because the fourth stanza was the thank God that we are saved and triumphant and glory and heaven, all, all of that. It wasn't time because we, we weren't at the end of the ceremony yet. So we're wait, I, I sort of get in terms of story structure that you don't spoil the ending quite yet. So it's a, though, that's how I view it is that stanza number five, that's spoilers. And even though we know you leave it. And so there's a structure to that. But I think that we always didn't do a very good job. Once we're done breaking the bread, we're supposed we're to ring out in song with this. Like how, how it's supposed to go in a breaking a bread service is that we're at this nadir at the end of the drinking the wine, which is supposed mm-hmm. to be joy. And then, right. then the, the money is passed around shamefully and secretly and we all put it in. And then oh. a voice rings out with a song and we sing this joyous song that is how it's supposed to go and we just we couldn't yes. pull off the joyous song now did you folks and it didn't happen very often in fact it happened so rarely that when it did happen it was a real shock someone would say shall we stand for a yes. particular moving um stanza they would say shall we stand and i remember it being very emotional that is so brethren we didn't have the guitar playing. We didn't have the no, organ. We didn't have the choir no. ringing out. We had that we would stand up to sing the happy song. And, yes. um, and we didn't sing it very happily. So Praise the oh, Savior no, we, we is supposed to be one of the happiest songs in the book. Oh, and no. it was always... A... <laughs> and it was like, telling the batteries were definitely wearing do you out. Remember, on the... um, do you remember... Oh, that will, the chorus is, oh, that will be joyful, joyful, joyful. We would say, oh, that will be. Yeah, it was just part of what people wouldn't expect is there was a, remember what I said that maybe we were targeting joy? And I think that we associate joy with upbeat and we associate joy with high tempo. And so when we Possibly. went to Sunday school, like Sunday school or young people's, we'd sing mm-hmm. fast songs, but there were no Definitely. fast songs sung at regular meeting. There was no songs that we sang that were just firing out those syllables. And we would, wouldn't dream were, of it. No. And like, I really clearly remember, um, you know, a music student started coming out. So he was becoming a brethren person and he had a lot of musical gifts. And so he decided that he was going to make like an instrumental tape of all of the hymns. And he was incredibly trained in music. But he asked me, he said, can I put like a beat? Can I put a drum in here in any form? Can there be anything percussive, even the bass, an upright mm-hmm. bass sound that sounds percussive? And I mean, I, of course, I, I thought you should because no one ever has. Mm-hmm. And his thought is, but if no one ever has, why haven't they? And, and wouldn't it be alienating that people wouldn't listen to this? And I know that if he had have gotten too upbeat, my mom would have said, that's too jazzy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's too worldly. She would say jazzy. And my mom remembers Elvis, you know, being on TV. Mm -hmm. And so she was definitely not from the jazz age. But that was still what middle-aged women when I was a teenager would often say. Songs are too jazzy. They're referring to what their parents would have said or the generation before that mm. that music has a bit of swing to it, a bit of jazz to it. That's too fun, like too much era, joy. Yes, absolutely. Glenn Miller, you know, in the mood.
Glenn Miller. I love Glenn Miller. I love Benny Goodman. I love that kind of music. And according to them, too happy, too fast, too joyful to be reverent for him. It was. It's a lifetime of this. What I found creepiest was this didn't just happen to children from their parents. Teenagers and young adults did this to their own peer groups. It was, once again, competitive piety. I can remember growing up, remember very vividly, a friend's mom saying to my mom, I'm sorry, but I think at dinner, I think we are all being a little silly. I think we are all laughing a little too hard. I think we are all being a little bit too, too much. And my mom saying, yeah, we were probably a little bit too, having too much fun, laughing too hard. This was a constant theme. Anytime we laughed too hard, sang too loud. An angel died. We, we very quickly had to put a lid on that. Yeah. Right. Because this world is a veil of tears, you know. This world is a wilderness wide. And this, this was done certainly to teenagers and young people more than regular people. I think you'd agree. Teenagers were so looked down on in the Brethren. If anyone was doing anything wrong, it was always the teenagers. Teenagers had such a terrible terrible rap in the brethren i remember being 12 years old when my birthday my birthday was a few weeks away and just dreading being a teenager because of everything that i had been told about how bad it was to be a teenager of course we didn't use the word teenager you understand we would say young people oh the beloved young people Mm -hmm. dear young people yeah right we wouldn't say teen I really remember a specific Montreal conference when the young people um, had been rowdy. So I think specifically they were going to strip clubs. I think specifically they were going to sex shops and I think specifically they were snorting Coke and somebody found out about at least some of this because it certainly wasn't most of Mm -hmm. us and gave an announcement. I was never cool enough to be part of anything me neither i'd be Never. standing around arguing about whether the lord's will was real or not and whether you could find it so like yeah. i wasn't anywhere near cool enough but i was always talking to the older people because i fit in better with the older people than so i ever did with people age. there was the guy that did the announcements in montreal because he had a really awesome like bass voice like really resonant right. bass voice he would do all the announcements and he stood up and did the announcements and there was sort of this happy feel that we've just had a lovely time over the word of God and how much we're yes. enjoying it. And then his voice did that shift and he said, but you know, a very solemn announcement that, and this is where he used the word blessed. And I realized that he was using the word blessed to mean f-ing. So he said, yep. and exactly. I regret to inform us that our blessed young people have been, and I realized, wow, you're actually using the word that means to bless, to curse. You're That's actually perverted. That is, and that's exactly the sort of inversion that I was used to seeing happen. I think he said, it saddens my heart to need to report Mm. that there are those among our blessed young people. And I very clearly heard, got to tell you guys, our young people have been on St. Cat's Avenue going and seeing strippers. And you know how it is Uh, when you communicate 7% of it, some, you know, person I'm sure very scientifically calculates is the words. So when he said yeah. that, we heard so much more than those yes. those words of our blessed young people. And, yeah. and I was a young person when he said that. I didn't feel that blessed in that moment. No, no. And it wasn't no, blessed. Didn't. It was blessed. Blessed. Yes. Blessed. 
And that's because the hymns do that to uh, to try to fully get those two syllables going, because right. otherwise it's only one syllable. And in a hymn, you need to have an ed sound to give you extra syllable. Yes, you need the syllable. It's a yeah. great songwriting trick, because if all of your last words and lines end mm-hmm. with ed and are verbs, and all of them say the ed, they all rhyme. Head, oh. blessed, walked. Mm-hmm. Know it. Uh, I mean, if you're going to do that, it everything rhymes magically, and it, it's it's a great recipe for writing the worst poetry and lyrics of all time to artificially <laughs> shift your verbs to the end of your sentences because that's not something we normally do. A lot of that, and the hymns are the little flock. A lot of really awkward sentence construction to make it fit. You know, my uh, one that I really liked, but I think it was pretty awkward in its pronunciation. So mm-hmm. O'Head one's full of bruises, so mm-hmm. full of shame and scorn, mid other sore abuses, abuses, crowned with a crown of thorns. Uh, it, it's not abuses to rhyme with bruises. Maybe it's our accent. Mm. Maybe the British people might have said it differently, but I'm sorry, but uh, bruises and abuses uh, doesn't really No, rhyme. it doesn't. No. I love that hymn because it was I really dark. Too. So, so the, the melody, I believe, is from St. Matthew's Passion by J.S. Bach. I believe that's where the melody comes from. And I think that the, the lyrics are 15th century. And yet we had this idea that it was somehow our hymn, in our hymn book. Oh, yes. I remember being just shocked when all of these melodies that we would sing that, we, that were ours ended up being Christmas carols. Yeah. Oh, Tenenbaum. Oh, Tenenbaum. Oh, that was shocking. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. So we weren't allowed to have Christmas trees. And we right. associate Germans with the Nazis. And we were singing a hymn. And then we found out that this is a Christmas tree, a Christmas tree, first of all, yes. which we're not allowed Christmas trees because they're idols. Right. And the Bible has a very, very creepily similar passage about not dragging trees out of the forest and adorning them with gold and silver to worship, <laughs> um, which is, of course, what all Christians do. They worship the, the tree. They but, fall down um, and worship the tree. So That's why pagan. they're bowing down to the tree. Yes. Kneeling down to get the presents under the tree, they're bowing down to the and tree. Singing, uh, and singing to the tree with this, <laughs> with, with one of our fairly written tunes from one of our hymns of sacrilege. I explained to Angel about how I was raised to feel like I needed a mentor, older brothers to guide me, and how I have trouble ever leaving that behind. But in all of this, we were looking for people to tell us what the Bible really said. And every time I approach a podcast or talk to someone, even talking to you, there's an overwhelming desire to want to see if somehow you could tell me the answer. And I think I'm trying to scale it down to what I really need is I just need something much smaller. I just need someone to say something that makes me think. Interesting. You know, like we, when you say things, it makes me think. And that's yeah. enough, I think. I don't need a mentor. But I mean, I, I think in my opinion, or what I'm hearing, is that you want somebody that opens up a new experience for you. Yeah, things things stagnate too much. Yeah. And so for me, I think, how can you gift that to yourself? Right. And again, it brings you back to that playful state. If you're researching and trying to discover things and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. what playful state can you enter that allows you to be your own mentor you know because I'm always looking and there's this vague feeling of discouragement and shame when you basically used up something you're whatever you're watching documentaries or following someone on YouTube and you realize that's not working anymore like it's not so you have to look more 
That's, and that's discouraging because you want to find for once and for all. You never will. But is, but again, let's go back to that brain setup of, were you taught that at some point there will be an answer? And like, yes, you were, if you were raised in Christianity, it's like someday Jesus is going to approve of you or Mm -hmm. someday you're going to go to heaven and your troubles will be over. And so then you get attached to the idea that there's an end game with Mm -hmm. life as opposed to just like, it's a conglomeration of your experiences. That's it. Definitely that. But also the idea that all the hard work had already been done and all the older people had done it and that you didn't need to worry yourself about it. And so when I was about 21, I was really going through this stuff. And the image that I came up with, I was really big on images. And and sometimes it became songs. The image in this case was, it was like they handed you a map and said, here you go. And then you realize this, this map is from the wrong century and it's the wrong continent. And I was trying, trying to do it and you can't do it. Mm -hmm. And you'll find that if you start drawing maps, they get really upset because they already gave you one. They already gave you one and you're not allowed to make your own. No. Yeah. It's it's suspect right there. But you right now, can you start making your own? I have. And I guess I think my life is the story that I I've mostly have done what I wanted. And it's just about feeling vaguely uncomfortable about that and missing what was falsely promised by my upbringing, the idea that yeah. there could be more peace. So you, you talked about, I think, did you use the word euphoria or bliss or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because for me, that's like daunting. So I've always liked the word contentment to get comfortable. Um, You mentioned enthusiasm too. And enthusiasm, I always feel pressured to demonstrate enthusiasm and I'm not good at it. I had a girl flirting one time and kind of suggested something. And I basically just said to her, look, I am all about no. It's unthinkingly described myself as all about no. It's like, you know, I am a brick wall. You're not getting through this. And that's too true. And I think that you're mentioning about um, not showing enthusiasm. I often have a bit of a stone face and a bit of a monotone. And it's not just me. It's a whole bunch of people raised like me. And I think yes. you, you had an explanation for it. Have you seen people like that too? Yes. And I definitely, this is the most amount of facial expression and tonal changes in my voice that I've ever, ever done. And that is also specifically why I chose to live in West Hollywood. West Hollywood is a very LGBTQ friendly community. Mm -hmm. So everyone is very bright and bold and everyone has a very loud personality. And I wanted to go somewhere where I could try and be as bright and as bold and as shiny as I possibly could. And I would still be the quietest person in the room. And so that gave me a safe space to now start to emote more and start to be a little bit more joyful or start to be a little bit more of myself and bring a little bit more of myself to life because I was taught to be invisible and to be mediocre. Because if you are too good at something, they have to punish you. And if you're bad at something, they have to punish you. So you were designed to be as mediocre as possible. Mm -hmm. About the flamboyant thing, I think I've come full circle, but I very much relate. And what, what really happened was... I was spending a lot of time with church people who were, I was boring and they were more boring than me. And mm-hmm. that meant that I had to be the interesting one. And it felt mm-hmm. like a real stretch for me to, to to be the interesting person, the most emotional person or whatever. I felt very like that didn't suit me. And then when I went away to school, I found that I was hanging around with people 
who were very like they, they could be stand up comics, they did voices, they did all those things. And I was just yeah. leeching that. I was I was thinking like I could say a sentence and sound like that or the way that yeah. he that he just like grabbed the person by the shoulder like I don't touch people I could do that I could just squeeze someone's shoulder and it was like I felt like a sociopath learning how to be human yeah and I did that with um friends I started watching friends oh yeah and you started talking yeah. like Ross well I wanted to be Chandler because I thought that he made people laugh I was, I was joking like, Chandler oh. is way better to imitate than Ross I was totally <laughs> joking with Ross and it taught me how to have a sense of, of humor because I didn't find humor. I wasn't allowed to laugh. If I laughed at the wrong moment, I would get a beating. Mm. And the fact that, that friends had a laugh track was really helpful for me because then, then I was like, wait, I'm allowed to find this funny, you know? And sometimes I would feel naturally the inclination to laugh and the laugh track would start and I would be really glad that I, I didn't get it wrong. I am allowed to find this funny. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, again, everything that naturally brings you joy or anything that is naturally a part of your personal expression, they have to get out of you. This connects to play, I think. Yes. And I, I think def- play is such a big healer. I, absolutely. I, I remember like humor was always a big deal for me and I got kicked out of my church for humor. Let's take a look in the Wicked Mailbag. Miriam says, my mother gave me the entire set of little house books when I was about 10. I was so excited and was talking about how good they were one Sunday when a sour older sister told me that the only book I should be reading was the Bible. Stuff like this happened frequently in the Brethren. Joy at the beauty of nature would be met with, it will all be burned up. An outing with friends was always questioned, are they the Lord's? Or worse, how can you be friends with them when you know they are going to hell? Ugh, the list is endless. Mark says he wasn't allowed movies on Sunday. Me neither, or other days either. Tom had a similar childhood prohibition, saying any kind of sport or games, including backyard soccer, etc., on a Sunday was not allowed. No friends to come over or me to visit friends. Sundays were so boring. Christy says, I took up knitting as an adolescent, and I just loved doing it. However, on long, lazy Sunday afternoons, I wasn't allowed to pick up my projects because God doesn't want us to work on the Sabbath. Yet I was ordered to finish my math homework on Sundays, and that really was work to me. Cheryl, no relation, says, wearing pants, makeup, jewelry, dancing, movies, etc. None of that was allowed for her. As always, North American brethren women like Cheryl talk about not being allowed to ever wear pants, by which they mean trousers, which is very confusing to people from the UK, where pants are what we call panties, and what we call pants are called trousers. Plymouth Brethren, in the UK and outside of it, have always been allowed to wear underpants with their modest skirts and dresses, to be clear. Daisy says, Harry Potter books, and celebrating Halloween. I wanted a costume so badly, and I was a book nerd, so I know I would have loved Harry Potter, even if it did promote witchcraft. Whalen says, Almost everything. Music, shows, live or on television, in fact, no TV at all. Dating, as in having a girlfriend at all. Just almost no life at all. Stevens says, 
I once got a peace sign sticker out of a gumball machine. My mom claimed it looked like an upside-down crucifix and that it was blasphemy against Jesus' crucifixion. I just rolled my eyes at her. Shalomi Homi says this stuff didn't commonly happen to him despite growing up in strict church circles. He says, not really. The worst culprit was probably my mom. I think it was a personality clash. She always saw the way to make something better. I was a creative, so I would create, and she would critique endlessly. I have done this at times. When I've noticed it, I've hated it, completely loathed it. This song had to be dredged up entirely from the recesses of my memory and the typed-up lyrics I still have of it. I can't find any recordings of it at all and haven't played it since I wrote it in the early 90s. I do remember back then doing a careful, long-lost demo of this one to 4-track, sounding more than a little like some kind of goth comfortably numb and with trumpet playing an important role in it. It has two verses, with one clearly being about me and one about my sister. The first one is about how we young guys were supposed to start to participate in the interminable Brethren Bible discussions and meetings, and some of us were trying. It was hard. If you strayed even slightly from the we're right, they're wrong, never forget how lucky we are to be here and always attend here and only hear anti-intellectual message, they'd either pretend you hadn't spoken at all or say something fairly passive-aggressive at you. Same thing if there was gossip that you'd been enjoying something worldly like a movie at the theater before meeting or something. For never say that you're walking with God if you're going in a path of disobedience. God will never uh, walk with you in that path. Or he'll never leave you, but you'll never enjoy his presence if you're going on in a path of disobedience. You could say things, but people just wouldn't respond. Girls couldn't take part in these group discussions, but they were supposed to be pleasant and helpful and good, and if they showed any questioning or backbone or had many thoughts, they'd suffer the same fate as the guys, often from their female brethren, albeit in the less formal discussions the girls might have been having. A whole lot of pretending that the other girl simply hadn't spoken at all. My sister did teach Sunday school to young preteens like Kim, because the older ladies shamed her into it, though she had nothing much to say, because she wasn't thinking much about the Bible or anything like that at that point. Not everyone is in her early 20s. I didn't teach Sunday school, of course, because they didn't want me doing that, because I was thinking all kinds of stuff. No real comfort or aptitude teaching children on my part anyway, right? The trick in the meeting was, off-the-cuff talking needed to happen for hours every week, from regular folks. Brethren people weren't to go to Bible school or anything natural like that. We had spiritual knowledge for a spiritual discussion. Now, a regular guy or girl might realize they had no real thoughts and consequently nothing much to say. But someone with spiritual gift had the knack of just talking anyway. No doubt the Lord as Holy Spirit was guiding everything that came out of one's mouth if one's head was nigh on empty going into the discussion. Some of us, though, we're having actual thoughts, lots of them, connecting dots, reaching epiphanies, and we were warned how much spiritual danger there was in this. We all got spoken to frequently. Whether you were a guy or a girl, it always felt like a morgul blade in the gut in the dark on Weathertop, I can tell you. For this podcast, I wanted to resurrect this old song. So I asked Evan, who's always up to collaborate, to send me a drum part for me to build a new version of the song around. I figured out more or less how the song used to go and sent Evan a very basic demo.
And Evan sent me drums. He emailed me a couple of takes of it, and I plugged it into the song just like that. I'm always being accused of showing my Pink Floyd roots in my music. With this one, I decided to go flat out on that, to try to make a noisier, more basso version of Comfortably Numb and Us and Them, only simpler, with me playing everything but the drums. My keyboard has wonky keys on it, so once again I cheated and made use of my Electroharmonics B9 guitar pedal, which basically is a plastic box that generates various keyboard tones triggered by plugging a guitar into it and playing it normally. My nerve-damaged left hand is hard for me to play guitar with at the best of times, but playing this song was a particular challenge for me. Oh, not the electric guitar chugging. That was fine. hear how much like Pink Floyd this was sounding. But the acoustics. I use my Nashville strung just the 12 string strings acoustic for one ear. And my regular six string acoustic guitar for the other ear. doubled each of those two tracks. Getting something usable involved editing out misfretted notes and layering a couple of takes to get something halfway normal sounding. Because I was doing Pink Floyd, I hit a boron-generated heartbeat sound in under Evan's kick drum, and went nuts on layered vocals. I think it ended up sounding like my usual stuff, only more than usual like a bunch of Gregorian monks who are seriously considering kicking your ass. There was a way place to make it where wrinkles fill up her eyes with suspicious dimly remember the original version of the song having trumpets in it recorded to cassette four track. Given how out of shape I am on the trumpet, I was just going to leave it and not bother with it. But then my well froze on a cold snap, and I decided while I was waiting for it to thaw out and get my running water again, that I would lay down a couple of trumpet parts. Voice of Death. 
Just be.